Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into a, an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this incredibly cool episode, historian, archaeologist, and dear friend Mark Ollie returns to speak about his new book, The Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur. Dude, this is awesome. You guys are absolutely going to love this. So, we talk about that. Plus, uh, Ancient Aliens, he's on that coming up. So, that's fascinating. As well as the Oak Island treasure mystery. He thinks he has it solved. So, I say we turn him loose on it. As well as Mummies in the Grand Canyon and the Grand Canyon itself guys mark is a dear friend so this one's easy and fun so really enjoy this all the ways of course to find him located down in the show notes all the ways as well to find us located down there as well got some brand new shirts up on the merch store so make sure that you guys take a second to take a look uh, and without any further ado let's get to this incredibly cool conversation with mark ollie um oh i, I can do that with this voice can't i yeah. yeah, let's do the real. Welcome to expanding reality. <laughs> dude, I love that. We're going to go with that. Mark Ollie, welcome yeah, to the show, man. Welcome. I love you, dude. I love you. It's so good to see you, man. Uh, you have joined me for a couple of the uh, Frequency Theorists is what we call those. It's an expansive insider show that we do. I'm going to link it below. You've been over there on a couple of them with us. And, dude, those things are crazy fun. We get yeah. together, we talk about music, conspiracies. Um, I've found out some awesome stuff about you. Your band, Copper Worm, of course, uh, yeah. has a new album coming out, which we're going to talk about. But super excited to see you. You know, and what's great about having a return guest on, man, and we're just family. You know, we're brothers now. Is that we yeah. don't go through the like, where are you from? Uh, introduce yourself. We're, I'm going to link your first episode below. You guys go check it out. Uh, his book. Uh, of hey, course, look at this first one. Book. There we go. Uh, Crystal Skulls Crystal and Human Skulls. Heads located yeah. down below. That's what our first episode is on. So again, located down below. But dude, you've got a new book out. Please tell us about this thing. Man. Well, that's the, as I said, Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph and Arthur. Um, oh, let's just get the advertising out of the way. If anybody wants to get it, go to Amazon. They're all on Amazon. All the books are on Amazon. So go find me on Amazon. Just type my name in. You'll get eight or nine books will come up. Take your pick. Loads of good stuff. But this is the biggest and it's the longest and it's taking the longest to put it together. So uh, it's only really been out since February officially. Uh, there were a few pre-Christmas releases because uh, we wanted some reviews. It's got fab reviews. People seem to love it to bits. Uh, it's not the King Arthur people are used to. 
you know, we're uh, we're going for the real thing. You know, as an archaeologist, I'm very much, you know, shoot, it's a duck, let's get down to brass tacks here. Uh, and, and that's what it's all about. So it's very different. Uh, but it gives you all the background you need to know about Merlin and how he became what he became and, and who and what he is and about Joseph of Arimathea and the Holy Grail, which is where he comes in and the development of early Christianity and what happens when those two things collide. And then along comes Arthur. So you've got Arthur and his knights and his associates and his stories and the legends, they're all in there. And then there's two more chapters after that, quite important. What happens immediately after Arthur because nobody ever talks about that. It's like, you know, one minute you're in 500 AD, and the next minute you're in 1100 AD, and well, people are like, hey. That's because yeah, history is a lie, and they just pull the thousand. Oh, yes, yeah, so how the hell did we get from, you know, from there to here? Uh, so the book covers that. So you're looking at Saxons, Danes, Vikings, the Welsh, you know, the ancient Britons. You're looking at all of that. And then the last bit, chapter five, is called The Legend. Uh, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I knew what was going to happen. I thought the academics are going to look at this and go, he's made it up. It's a load of nonsense. So the whole of the last chapter is nothing but source material, one after another, after another, after another. There's about 400 uh, references there, books that cover everything. They cover right from the saints' lives, you know, in the 8th, 9th, 10th century, right the way through to books that were only published, you know, the last couple of years. It's all in there. So just for the academics, for the nerds, they can read that and they can see how the legend developed, you know. So it's all in there. Well, the first four chapters are... Knockout, absolutely knockout. Plus, uh, your new <laughs> record coming out. Um, plus, you've been taking time to go on Coast to Coast and Ancient Aliens, and you've got a new book, and you've got so much stuff happening, man. I am just yeah. so proud of you. I'm so, so grateful for yeah. you. And you're here for all of it, and you're smiling like you, like today. We were messaging back and forth. Uh, you have a cold. I was like, dude, do you want to reschedule? You're like, no, nah, man, let's send nah. it. Let's go. I love it. Yeah, my, vo my voice is croaky because actually, do you know when you arrange things, you don't really pay any attention to what you're arranging? Yep. And then all of a sudden, it dawns on, the, it dawns on you that you've just arranged like, 40 interviews in five weeks right. you know what I mean it's like ah, oh, what I done? so understandably my voice is a little bit worn out by now um, you know and then somewhere in all that some in the middle of all that ancient aliens decide they're going to chuck out season 19 I'm on the one for obelisks and I'm on the one for crop circles so like you say it's just you know it's bonkers uh, and I'm already working on the next book so if you want to get to the end and chat about that Do you know I the next yeah, we'll get to your next book at the end here. Um, so yeah, I want right to know, and God, it's so cool. But, <laughs> but again, guys, so, and again, y'all know this in the audience, all the ways to find him, of course, linked down in the show notes. Make sure that you'll yeah. check that out. Um, okay, so let, let's talk about this. So are you saying now that King Arthur wasn't made a king because some watery tart was sitting in a lake distributing <laughs> swords? <laughs> yeah, Monty Python, you know, yeah, the moist you bent with the... Uh, get that reference. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so there's a couple of things in there wrapped in that. The first thing is, uh, and I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, that a lot of the legends have got a tiny, tiny little seed of truth in there because the bards and the people that were writing for kings and, you know, doing all this for overlords and doing these stories had to make the stories believable. So up to the medieval period and then eventually the invention of printing, there's always a little tiny bit of, you know, truth in there somewhere. So, yes, the sword 
was important in Arthur taking up his position of office uh, because he was crowned at 15 and given a bronze sword of office called Calderbolg. Now, the bronze sword of office, you couldn't, you couldn't fight with it. You'd be like, you know, hitting people with a piece of lead. It'd just be useless. Uh, but as a ceremonial sword, it was vitally important. And it was pulled from a stone mould. So you've got a kernel of truth in that legend, okay, um, which they completely made a complete nonsense of in medieval times because, yes, in medieval times you made swords on, on anvils because they were made of iron, but you don't pull an iron sword out of an anvil in a churchyard in 500 AD. You know, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so they lost the kernel of truth somewhere along the way. Uh, he was never He was never a king. There were military commanders, military rulers known as Dux Bellorum, which means Duke of Battles. And there were at least five of them in Wales and four of them with swords all turn up at his coronation. And his, his, his coronation is in Chester. So he gets the authority to join this elite group of uh, post-Roman military commanders. That's what they are. The king the king at the time actually might have been a Welsh king, uh, a chap called Mel, Melguin Gwynedd, uh, Melguin of Wales. He was probably the king. Uh, and later on in his life, he serves, um, I think it's Theodosius, which is the last of the Roman emperors. He goes over to fight for him on the continent. But essentially, he's a warrior thug. That's what he is. He's a really tough hard nut uh, that's that's his function so why didn't so, any uh, of the other guys that he was running around with have those legends cast about them as well or did they um one or two of them have got tales about them um but i think the the crucial part of arthur is uh, when you look at what his legends are they are the absolute last of a golden age, you know, uh, he's the last Dux Bellorum to survive. He's the last to follow the Roman pattern. When he dies about three or four years after his death in 539, the volcano Krakatoa erupts. We get the Leonid meteor shower. There's tidal waves, there's plagues. The sun gets blacked out for three years. You know, no wonder they couldn't work out where the poor guy was buried because nobody could be bothered to write the records out. You know, um, you, you start to get the picture. Uh, and Merlin's the last of, of you know, 3,000 years of Druids by 600 AD. The Merlins, because there's six at least of them that I've got, that title is gone because everything that they represent is wiped out by the Anglo-Saxons, you know, and the Anglo-Saxons hate him to bits. You know, they, they just know him as this faceless warrior that just keeps kicking their ass every time. You know, they don't know who the hell he is and they don't really want to know who he is either. They're not going to sing anything heroic about King Arthur. You know, they won't, they won't do any tales of this, you know, amazing uh, king that isn't, you know, they, they just won't. But the, the Britons, the Welsh and the, the Danes and the Vikings, who then ultimately develop into the Normans, they're the foundation of what we've got over here in England now. They're very interested, you know, because it's their hero. It's their type of hero. Uh, and that's all in the development chapter that I mentioned earlier. That's that's where you see this, uh, what is essentially a relatively minor, you know, uh, leader developing into this, you know, medieval superhero. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, kind of at the end, you know, it seems like a like a um, almost like a melancholy end, sort of a Don Quixote type archetype where there's like no more battles to fight. You know, the war's over kind of thing. Like he's just got a. You know, oh, uh, yeah. it, fade it gets, 
it gets really bad at the end, actually. Um, I mean, some of these names will be familiar to you, but the first Merlin is Taliesin. He's alive in about 424.30. The second Merlin is Ambrosius, which is Uther's elder brother. So he's Merlin Ambrosius. The next Merlin, Merlin Lelogan, Merlin Deerfriend. He's a 102-year-old, 103-year-old, you know, magical guy that's in all the legends. He makes it right up to the Battle of Baden. So he sees the victory. He sees Arthur's victory. And then comes the kicker, because the next Merlin, Merlin Willet, is Merlin the Mad. He goes mad because basically the ancient Britons, after Arthur, descend into civil war. After the Battle of Camelot, when Arthur's killed, they start killing each other. So he uh, he goes, sorry, he goes slowly mad. He goes slowly insane. He finishes up in the woods of Celadon, which is uh, Cumbria and Lower Scotland. He ends up up there going nuts. So the decline is very quick. You know, it's within a, a single person's lifetime. And then he hands his baton on to Merlin uh, Tertugan, who is the last one. And he's a poet who lives in the lowlands. And by 600 AD, they're gone. You know, but you can see the decline. Everything from sort of Bain onwards like you say he's nothing but pathos and destruction you know and he gets he gets killed by his own son none of none of his family survive he has seven sons and none of them survive so that tells you how violent his times were you know he kills a couple of them because they rise up against him you know a couple of them die in battle and then you got the famous one at the end Mordred who absolutely hates his guts because he abandoned him as a as a child trust me the stories like game of thrones you know Jeez. it just it pales into insignificance compared to the the legends um you know and they have this big bust up at Camlan. And of course, Mordred has a garden with this poisoned Saxon spear. So um, Arthur's theoretically dead or passes on to the other world, whichever you believe, uh, within three or four days of, of getting this spear injury. Uh, but Mordred dies, you know, in the process uh, during the battle. And there's only about, I think there's only seven people survive the battle. Jeez. You know? How crazy is that? You go in thousands of people and there's like 70 standing around. You're like, uh, are we still doing this or what? You know? Yeah, it's <laughs> nuts. So yeah. it sounds, so do you think that it was a, a case of that the Saxons, it was an inevitable uh, defeat for King Arthur and, and uh, the crew and that maybe Merlin and King Arthur were just, that particular Merlin were and King Arthur were just like the last refuge of this empire that was inevitably going to collapse anyway? Or do you think that because Arthur fell that that was the collapse and it was sort of a pillar that there's a, there's a definite tension between the two um what i do rather cleverly is through the timeline because it's a polychronicon i can drop in the entries from the anglo-saxon chronicle so it's almost like you're watching what arthur's doing and you you know you sort of cheering him on but in the background you can see this insidious creeping enemy getting closer and closer you know yeah, it's like and, a cutaway you know it's like yeah, a cutaway yeah. to the other person's base and then their base and you can see what yeah, both teams that, are doing that's awesome absolutely nailed it that's what it's like so you know one minute arthur's there you know defeating the saxons and kicking their ass in wales but the next minute the whole of essex has just fallen you know or the whole of wessex has fallen or the whole of east, Lang east anglia has gone so you can see them creeping up so there is an inevitability about it but what you do realize is arthur actually stopped them dead literally dead for about 30 years you know they were terrified of going anywhere near him so they, he really was awesome 
you know, you can understand why they deliberately tried to avoid him. You know, they deliberately tried to write him out of history. He must have been the biggest embarrassment in Anglo-Saxon history, you know. But he stopped them for 30 years. And when they finally got rid of him, the Britons decided they weren't going to replace Arthur with another king or another leader because they were waiting for him to come back. So they didn't bother to replace him for about 70 or 80 years. And the Saxons just sat there waiting for him to come back. Damn. So, you know, it's 600 and something AD before you see any decent movement. You know, it's nearly 100 years later, you know, before they're making any kind of inroads into Arthur's territory, uh, which is mind, absolutely mind-boggling. And was it it's, just it's, because of the legend, because they didn't know he had died and because they just thought he was yeah, going to just show well, up any minute? Yeah, it's it's a mixture of it's that. Myth, I mean, yeah. you know, not only is there more than one sort of version of Arthur, there's more than one Duke of Battles. So they're, they're obviously, you know, hesitating about that. You've also got this problem in 542 when, you know, you get hit by new, basically nuclear winter fallout, you know, and everything goes to, to hell in a speedboat. That drags on for a long time. You've got 30 or 40 years of, of you know, crops burning in the fields and people dying of the yellow plague. And, you know, so the Anglo-Saxons are having it pretty tough as well. So it kind of holds everything up. You know, um, which everybody, believe it or not, in this country, put down to the death of Arthur. Yeah, they, they you know, so he, he was that kind of bloke. There's a, there's a brilliant poem. Got to tell you about this poem. The very first reference to Arthur. There's a poem in Southern Scotland, and it's pages and pages and pages of this. Pictish poem, early Pictish poem that survived in early medieval form. And all these pages and pages go, you know, hey, this warrior's brilliant. This warrior's great. This warrior did that. This warrior did this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on forever till you get to the last page. And just on the last page, there's this last line of the poem. And all it says in, 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 uh, in Pictish, it just says, but he was no Arthur. Damn. So an entire now, page after page of poem written about this amazing dude, but he was still but not the legendary. He was, he was no Arthur. Now, you, by using the language, you can trace that all the way back to the early 600s. So within 100 years of his death, this guy, Arthur, is famous enough to have stuck in the minds of the warriors up in, you know, southern Scotland. Uh, and he's stuck in their minds to such an extent that they're still comparing people to him. And they're still failing, you know, they're, they're nowhere near him. Um, when you start to put stuff in chronological order, wow, it's mind boggling. The stuff you come up with is is incredible. It Far is. better than all the, you know, Jeffrey and Monmouth nonsense, you know. Yeah. Sword yeah. in the Stone is cool, but it's even cooler the way you describe it. Like it's a physically chiseled out imprint, negative relief of a sword that they pour molten iron into or steel, right? Yeah, and they, they'd have uh, two, two they... halves of a stone mold and they'd put wire around the mold so there'd be a hole in the top. And then they'd pour the bronze in, which is a massive ceremonial thing. You know, it's, it's the sacred metal of the sun and it pours in and it shines, you know, and you get all these sprues kind of, you know, spitting out. And then they wait till it cools they take the wire out, pull it apart so you've got it in one half, and then whoever is the the spiritual person responsible, which in this case I'm presuming it would be Merlin Lelogan, you know, it's the old guy, uh, he, he, go, he actually grabs the sword and pulls it out the mould. But there's just the suspicion that maybe 
maybe the new owner does that, you know. Yeah. Maybe Arthur really does do it, you know. Yeah, we sort can of a see rite it, of passage. In, a, in the is, same yeah. way that the story presents yeah. it, as if he has to pull this thing and he's the only one worthy, but the same... <clears throat> excuse me, thing would be true. Because if you're standing there, the sword's being made for you. Uh, all the people around are encouraging and, and going through all this with you. Then yes, the sword is for you. Therefore, you are worthy to receive it. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, he, a brilliant... He, he, he does have a formal coronation. I mean, his formal coronation is recorded as taking place in Chester. And the other sword-bearing nobles obviously turn up and then he gets presented with this thing, you know, finished. But I think it's it would cooler... Just... I think it's cooler yeah. that they built it in a boulder that was split in half, formed, yeah. wrapped in wire, poured things rather than this thing sticking yeah. out. You know, I mean, it's a cool, yeah. it's, both are cool stories. But like you said, when you get the history into it, I mean, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, Arthur did have two, he had two iron swords, but they were Roman, you know, they're Roman style gladius. So he had two of those. Uh, one of those was given as a gift by Richard the Lionheart during the Crusades. Uh, he sent it into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because uh, Richard never went into Jerusalem. He said he was uh, he was too uh, blood drenched as a warrior. So he never went in. He wouldn't go into the Holy City. Uh, so he sent uh, he sent one of his men in and, and presented it as a gift. So I've got I've got this wonderful idea, you know, one day I'm going to phone up the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and I'm going to go, hello, have you got a rusty iron bar in a cupboard somewhere, you know, and you've got no idea what it is. You know, hey, I can tell you what it is. So you has know. no one confirmed that it's there? The story says that that's where it was taken, but nobody says that there's a, a sword meeting its description there? I feel a television program coming on. No, nobody's nobody's oh, chased it. Dude, there this are is so many of these artifacts in the book, and I, I do it on purpose. I drop them like breadcrumbs. You know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, this grail, that grail, this relic, this object, this sword, this shield, this. You know, I just drop them all in, and I'm just dying for a producer to phone me up one day and go, go get them. Go find them. You, you know? know me. You know me, and you know I know a lot of people. We're going to talk. I didn't know this was a mission of yours. We're talking after this. Stay on after we get done with this, dude. Uh, what? Okay, so tell us about if, if you don't mind, because now I'm just in yeah, far this. away. So yeah, do you, far away. What about the shield that you were talking about? Tell us about that. Uh, it's got some. It's got an unpronounceable Welsh name that begins with W. Um, sort of like Wonderbirthrutcher or something. It's called. Anyway, what it means when you translate it out of the Welsh, it just means uh, face against the evening or face against the setting sun so which translates roughly as this thing will protect you against death you know you're not going off to the lands of the death where the sun sets you know in, in the west this thing will stop you from dying uh, and what it's said to have it's said to have on the front a boar and on the back the image of the Virgin Mary with child. Now, what's interesting about that is we've actually got archaeological remains in this country that have both Anglo-Saxon pagan and Christian iconography joined on the same object. So that's correct. Uh, and then there's a shield. I think it's the Battersea shield came out of the Thames in London that has a boar on it. It's got the outline of a boar. So again, you, you're back into reality. You're back into the tales of archaeology and, and real discoveries, you know, um, Absolutely. So that was his shield. Uh, you know, so he's, cool. he's, he's got lots of other things. I think there's about 30 odd different, there's about 30 odd different weapons. He's, and he's got names for all of them. There's about five or six different swords. There's uh, a ship, a dog, a shield, a spear, uh, a couple of daggers, you know, and, and they've all got legendary names. Um, and I've listed, I've listed them all. They're all in the book, you know. Um, what dog? Oh, gosh. 
Okay, you're going to love this. Uh, I am going to love this. Go ahead. <laughs> his dog, right, everybody's rowed over this. It's been a major argument for ages. His dog in Welsh, I think I'm right in saying, is called Cabal. And it's very often referred to as Cabal Cabal. Now, what that, what that translates as, you ready for this, is horse. Now, what you've got to remember is at this point in time, you've only got Welsh cobs. They're only small horses. What you've got socking great big Irish wolfhounds. Yeah. So what that's telling you in plain English or plain Welsh, ancient Welsh, is that his dog is the size of a horse. Right, right. And like it's not just a horse. Yeah. yeah, it's a horse horse. It's an <laughs> Irish wolfhound. You know what I mean? You can put a saddle on this thing. Um, so I love that. That's absolutely amazing. You know, so that, that's in the book, obviously. Uh, but fancy having a dog called horse. You know, this is some real... Some of the sense of humor is really dark as well. There's some great moments in the book. That's amazing. Yeah, really. So the, the dog's name was horse or they referred to it as a horse. Do you know the dog's no, they, name? They, they called it a horse. They called it horse. Okay. Cabal. Yeah, right. See, so See, yeah. and my wife does this. She'll name uh, cats like a bear or cougar or something like this. I think it's adorable when people name a species of animal after another species of animal. I just think that that's adorable. Th this is fascinating, dude. So a uh, bunch of little daggers, a bunch of little iconography. Now, what I'd love to is that you pointed out the pagan and Christian uh, combined yeah. iconography because that was a very big iteration to get all the pagans over to the Christian side. They were like, hey, dudes, we're, we got the same thing. You just got to give up all the gods and just say cool to one. So, oh, God, well, let me just let me just drop a tiny bit of evidence in there for please, you because you're going to yeah. love this. We've got this helmet and it's called the Benty Grange helmet. Now, it's dated to about 600 AD, but I think it's older. I think you're looking at 500s, you know what I mean? It's I think it's contemporary with Arthur. And it's got this boar, you know, Germanic boar on the top with all these bristles. And it used to have panels of boar's tusks in it. So you don't get much more pagan than this, you know. It was probably 100 years old when it, when it came over here. It's a proper Scandinavian, you know. Anglo-Saxon helmet, and guess what? There, on the nose piece, inlaid, is a Christian silver cross. So the guy that's wearing it is basically he's, he's edging his bets both ways. You know what I mean? Right. He's, yeah. he's he's ticking both boxes. But there's only a certain period of time in the north of England when both of those symbols would have been able to be used like that at the same time, and that is from about 500 AD into the days up to the plagues after the death of Arthur. So I'm going to put the helmet between 500 and 550 AD. And any archaeologist that disagrees with me can go and chew his knuckles off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, I don't care. Wailing and gnashing of teeth, you know. That's I, right. Y'all go nuts. I really it's fine. don't care. Yeah, yeah, I've already published it. I'm going to go on Expanding Reality. We're just hanging out. So y'all yeah. enjoy your conversation. Yeah, that's fine. There you go. <clears throat> so interesting, dude. So it, another thing that's so fascinating about this is the uh, degree of Merlin's. I thought Merlin was one dude. I didn't know it was a title or a series of people. So clear that up for us if you don't. Okay. Well, what was interesting is I'm not, I'm not by any means the first person to work that out. Um, there was quite a famous Welsh scholar that was looking at the Welsh tales uh, in the 1500s. So now you're talking before the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, and he's looking at the histories and he's thinking, there's two of them. There's no doubt about it. There's two of them during the legends of Arthur. Uh, and he comes down with exactly the same decision I did. First one's Le Logan, second one's Willet. There's two very distinctly different Merlins. Um, there's been loads of efforts over the over the years to try and merge those two characters together, but they just, they, it just doesn't work. They're totally different. 
Um, and what it appears to be is that the the Druids are basically the last of the, you know, the Greek philosophers, the astrologers, the astronomers, the natural scientists, you know, uh, herbalists, uh, poets, bards, you know, uh, visionaries. They That's what they are. But they all have their own personality. So at any given point in time in Wales, one of them was obviously more prominent than the others. So as I said, the first one is Taliesin, fabulous, world-famous Welsh poet. You know, nobody would argue with that. But his name is Merlin. But he's very early. He's too early for the chronology. Uh, then Ambrosius, he's one of the major characters of the Arthurian cycle. He's the older brother of Uther Pendragon, the father of Arthur. But Ambrosius, he was so enlightened. He was such a good warrior and a political leader and a religious leader that they gave him the title Merlin because it was appropriate. Uh, then you got the two Merlins during Arthur's lifetime. Uh, then immediately after that, as I say, you end up with this guy up in Scotland, Tertugan. And then there's another one, I think, after that that survives up in Ireland. Gluckbard, I think his name was. Um, but nobody has any surviving information about him but in total there's six of them and they stretch over a period of about 200 excuse me 250 years um it's a title it's an honorific title but i mean hey go on what was interesting because you said the first one uh thessalonius what was his name Taliesin. Taliesin. I was nowhere close. Taliesin. I got the T right. All right, cool. Uh, it sounded like you said that, that he didn't have the title of Merlin in the history, but that the title of Merlin was given to Ambrosia. So it sounds like that that Ambrosia was the one where the title was bestowed, but then they were kind of like, you know who else was like this guy? Dude, this. Oh, no, no. Taliesin had it. Taliesin, Taliesin had yeah. it. Okay. He had the title. He's the first. The first. Yeah. Okay. So what was that title regarding from him? Was it just, where did the magic tie into it? The magic <sighs> wizardry bit? Well, if, if you look at what Taliesin was capable of, his, his strong point in his poetry was that he could foretell the past, the present and the future. So that was his gift. It was prophecy, and also he could do it on an individual level. So he could turn up in your court as a king, and he would go, hey, you're going to have a bad day next week. Damn. Guess what's going to happen to you, you know, which is an amazing ability to have. Yeah. So that was his magical ability, was was one of, of prophecy. Um, the next one, Ambrosius, like I say, uh, organizational, religious, political, military, boy, was he like the top man. So you'd want to give him some honor. Uh, I, I kind of think Merlin, the next guy, you know, Merlin Logan, he's, he's the guy you always see in the movies, you know, kind of raises, puts a staff up and goes, I shall blot out the sun, you know, wham. And it's like an eclipse and everything yeah. goes black, you know? So he's the kind of guy everyone would have been. Wow. What a guy, you know, um, is it magic or is it science? You know, Ooh, I don't know about that one. Um, I think it's a mixture of the two. Uh, the next guy then is is quite obviously an astronomer because he has a an observatory built for him um, in the forests. His sister, who is actually a prophetess, she builds him uh, this observatory which by the description in the story, it sounds like a mini mini version of Stonehenge, uh, but she builds it up in Cumbria, up in the lowlands of Scotland for him. So he can kind of observe the stars and times and seasons. So basically he's, he's a human clock, you know, he's, he, he's recording history. 
And then the last guy, you've gone all the way full circle with the last guy to Tugan, because he's writing poetry very much like Taliesin was at the beginning. Uh, but some of his poetry, especially to do with battles, he was a dab hand at predicting what was going to happen um, in battles. Now, when the Scots are fighting the Saxons, you know, he's the guy you want on your team. Uh, and that's kind of where he got his honorific title from. Um and then all we know about the guy in, in, in Ireland is that he probably went from Scotland to Ireland and he was a poet. That's all we know. But then the, the days of the bards, the troubadours, the poets, you know, which are the 600s, 700s, 800s, 900s, that kind of uh, time period, that's just really taking off. You know, it's really happening. So in, in one way, he's the last of the old bards but he's the first of the new bards as well you know it's a new it's a new function to be able to turn up at court and deliver that sort of thing you know um so yeah it's just it's 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 a flow it's a flow of uh yeah science and magic that's what it is it's going all the way back to the bronze age you know it's where druidry begins dude it's so cool it's so cool, <laughs> it's so cool. Uh, you know, and it's kind of like uh, King Arthur over there, I guess, in the UK, if I will say it this way, is like mm. the, um, I don't know, like Davy Crockett or something here. There's like this legendary character. So is that the thing? Did you find that? I mean, you've uh, traveled all over. I mean, King Arthur's yeah. probably a bit more prevalent where you, in your backyard than over here, right? It's interesting. Um, the Arthur that I'm dealing with, mostly in North Wales, uh, that's not a million miles away from me. I can drive into North Wales in, in, in an hour or so. But Britain's only small anyway. Um, you can blame the Normans for moving it to places like Glastonbury and Tintagel and, you know, taking it south. That's all politics. That's later, uh, which I do cover in the book. I mean, I absolutely tear it to shreds, uh, but it's not really relevant you know, to the Arthur that I'm dealing with. Um, and uh, he, he's such a powerful, heroic character. You know, I've sort of brought him back north. But he always was north. You know, he always was in the northern part of Britain. I mean, Camelot's Chester is the Roman capital of Britain. That's, you know, 20 odd minutes down the road from where I am here. Uh, you know, so I'm familiar with the geography as well as I am with the legends. Uh, I had a bit of help from Scott Lloyd and Steve Blake, who did the Keys to Avalon and Pendragon, The Search for the Real Arthur. Uh, that's on Element Books. They did it in uh, the 1990s and just going into 2000 before Element went bust. They had another one as well on the Grail, so I got to see some of that material. Uh, but they can speak archaic Welsh better than me. Um, and Scott is the uh, was the chief librarian at, at the Welsh Library of Aberystwyth. So it was like, just phone him up, you know, and go... Can I have access to the Black Book of Hergus, please? And he's like, yeah, of course you can. Come on down. So, you know, that, that really that sped things up, you know, over the last 25 years or so. That's really got things going. Yeah, um, local source material. That's amazing. Absolutely, totally. Uh, and, and as I started answering questions about, you know, where's, where's Arthur's family? Oh, look, they're all up in the Old North. You know, the Henogled, which is the Welsh for Old North. You know, where's all the sites, you know, that he's mentioned being at? Oh, look, they're all up, up there in the Old North, you know, and it just you just kept tumbling over it. By the time you finish, you could, you could see exactly where he was. Absolutely no doubt about it. So cool. Okay, here's what we're going to yeah. do. I'm going to hook you up with a producer or something. We're all going to manifest 
process this together, guys, okay? Yeah. And we're yeah, going to go look it. for some of these lost artifacts, but we're going to go on this stop, and Mark, you'll be our guide, and we'll take a group oh, yeah. of us, and we'll go out there yeah. and just hang this thing out. Dude, we've got this covered. Yeah, let's, so, let's do, do a weekend in North Wales. Let's do I'll it, take man. you around it. Yeah. Oh, done. It's oh. booked, guys. Write in if you want to be a part of that. We will absolutely <laughs> get this thing set up. I'm, we're doing this stuff now. It's just quick, quick, quick. Okay, so uh, I want to know just like one of the most fascinating things that even you that blew your mind getting into this and you you were ready to have your mind blown but what is something that on this journey for this for this work that you just completed it's amazing again guys linked below uh what is something that just blew your mind about it i think it's it's the fact that it is so 21st century let me just read you what i put on the back of the book because this this is what you know if anything pops your mind this this is it okay it says this merlin becomes one of an ancient line of Pythagorean scholars and political visionaries. Joseph of Arimathea, a religious dissident fleeing persecution and death to far-off foreign shores. Arthur, a hardened womanizing battle leader who loses his entire family and culture to war and eventually to natural disaster. God. That's that's like that's like yesterday's newspaper headlines. It is. It is very contemporary. That's amazing. Wow. And, you know, it's only when I got to the end of the book and, and I wrote the bit on the back and I thought, my goodness, it's real. Yeah, you know? it's just history repeating. It's just yeah. the same thing over and over and over again with these similar it, It's real. It's real people, real places, it's real, real, real exactly. things happening, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Forget, you know, dressing up in shiny uh, Renaissance armor and fighting dragons to save maidens, you know, forget all that nonsense. Got nothing to do with it at all, um, yeah. you know. It's cool how they get conflated, but the actual history yeah. that you were able to detect is is so cool as well. I mean, you go through your yeah. periods with it, right? Like you love learning about the legends as a, as a kid because it's just awesome. They they animated a great show with that, and then uh, you get to to this point where you really appreciate the depth that it is and the real stories of real people. Uh, yeah, this, this is fascinating, Mark. I mean, one I'll give you a good example. Uh, like uh, we mentioned Mordred earlier on. Well, when Arthur's a teenager, uh, he's being taught sword play. Um, in this Roman villa, which is on the lake, Bala Lakes, Shores of Bala Lake. It's archaeological excavated. We know exactly where it is. I go stabbed, you know, exactly where Arthur stood. We know exactly where it is. And it's Hector's villa. And that's where he was taught swordplay. While he's there, um, he meets Guayar, who is this local maiden, about the same age as him. Uh, and, you know, as you do, they kind of get it on. They become a couple. Uh, and Hector says, yeah, go on. Let's stay together. You know, you guys make, make a go of it. And they produce Mordred. And then all of a sudden, they're only together a very short period, a couple of years. He gets the news that his, his, his dad, who's the Pendragon, has just been murdered by the Saxons. So he's up. It's his turn. He has to go and deal with stuff. And as he starts taking on his role, Guayar and Mordred get pushed further and further and further into the background. So you can see their hatred of Arthur growing. Then Arthur goes off and decides he's going to deflower this maiden in a local village because he's a warrior and he can. And Mordred ends up marrying this warrior's sister. So you've now got two families that hate him. And eventually, he ends up, for political and military reasons, marrying Guinevere because she's a Pictish queen. So he's got his queen and, you know, this and the other. He's got his warriors and all that. But now he's got he's got these two families uh, waiting in the wings. And ultimately, it's Mordred that kills him. 
Now, when you start looking at this in chronological order and you see it all building together, you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, you've got Mordred marrying, you know, Whale's sister. Uh, you know, when you see that happen, you go, oh, you know, whoa, I can see where this is going. But unless you get all the baggage out of the way, unless you get all the original legends together, these things don't line up. They, they don't marry up until what I've done. You know, you string it out in order and all of a sudden it starts to make sense. And it, it, honestly, you can see why, you know, some of the slightly prudish, extremely religious medieval lot, you know, were like, well, we need, we need to put a bit of a shine on this. You know, yeah, we, we can't leave this like this. Yeah, it's incredible yeah. how the, you know, the uh, interpretation of history. And it's brilliant what you said as well, because the Saxons coming in, we're lucky we have anything from it at all, because, you know, mm. history is told by the victors, right? And so it's yeah. interesting, any of the history, how is any of it verified? But I like also that you went out and found Vikings and several other cultures that spoke of Arthur, well, and that's how you were able to verify it. That is a fabulous story. I mean, I was, I was going through the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Uh, there's a couple of other chronicles as well as a chronicle of Essex and one or two other bits and bobs. And I'm looking at what's going on and they, they actually tell you what the Vikings are doing because the Vikings are annoying the Saxons as well. They really don't get on. So, you know, there's a bit of Saxon bashing going on there as well. And uh, One of the entries says, you know, uh, and the Vikings attacked uh, the monastery in North Wales at Bangor. You know, this monastery at Bangor on Dee. Guess where the Arthurian Library for the uh, uh, for the Welsh was? Banger on D. Bang, banger on D. Bingo. That's where everybody, Geoffrey of Monmouth, and you know the death of Arthur, Lord Lamont Arthur, all that material, all the real big, like you know, famous Arthur material, is coming from the library. At banger on D. Yeah, so the all of a rat pack. I love yeah, it. All, yeah, all of a sudden you've got Vikings running all over it. So when they'd finished, like you know robbing it and deflowering the maidens and pulling all the jewellery off the book covers and this, you know, they actually sat down and talked. They must have done it at some point. And they're like, Arthur, we like the sound of this guy, you know, uh, and you can see it happening. You've got these points of contact. You know, it happens in South Wales. It happens in Chester. Uh, and the more this happens, the more you can see this stuff coming out of Viking culture and then Norman culture, because, of course, the Normans are, you know, Northern French. And that's an interesting one as well. There's um, a really good story about Northern France where it turns out that, you know, forgets in Targel and all this nonsense, Uther Pendragon's uh, wife, Igea, is French. She's actually French. So when you know that, I mean, that means Arthur's at least half French. He's also got about 10%, 15% Spanish in him as well. Um, but when you find out that his, his mum is French and she comes from exactly the areas of northern France where his legends are popular. So it's like all of a sudden now I understand why the French have got a hand in, in, in the pot. You know what I mean? And it's like there's so many things like that that get answered as you start going through the book, you know, almost every page is like a light bulb coming on, you know, and it's just, it's just amazing. What's amazing to me is like the work that you did in uh, Crystal Skulls and Human Heads. You find stuff that's just out there. Uh, you also remind me of just a couple of other of, uh, other archaeology friends that I have that just shit that's like other archaeologists will go out and just spend their lives on and write papers and get tenured and all this stuff. And then they don't see the things that are right in front of your face. But you have an intuitive look at this stuff. You have more of a, yeah. in my mind, you have a very broad perspective, a very broad set of lenses in which you view this through. I, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm 
I'm tied I'm tied to certain academic foundations. So I do yeah. a lot of work at Chester. I do, I've done a lot of work in the past at Liverpool. Um, I'm at Wilmslow Guild, which is the oldest adult educational facility in the world. That's coming up for 100 years not in a few years' time. So I've got the academic background, but, but this is the kicker. Uh, my career does not depend on that. Right. You know, so I have a, a modicum of freedom uh, and I've got this enormous belief that I'm not writing for academics. I'm not writing stuff that's never going to be seen that, you know, is going to, you know, rot in a private library somewhere or a storage box forever. I, I am writing. I am a communicator. I am writing for the public. You know, I want this information out there. Which makes my approach slightly different, but it does have to be said. It took about about two two years, maybe three years, to write Crystal Skulls under lockdown, but it, it took about forty five years to write this one. That's an insane book. I remember having you on, and you, uh, you know, uh, earlier on, and. Uh, I want to say it was in between when I had you on for this and a live or something like that. Anyway, but you were talking about this fabled book that you were working on that you and Philip were talking about publishing and you were like, dude, it's huge and it's oh, color wow. and I got to do it right. And this was over a year ago, dude. So you you told me about the book that we're talking about. Yes, right there. Video version in the show notes, guys. But of course, it's going to be linked. It's a beautiful book. And so I'm excited that you get this thing out because I already heard about it. And so to see you do it and then, you know, Philip Mantle sends me interview requests for new author, new books that come out because I'm yeah. with you guys. And so when I saw yours come through i was like yes <laughs> I, I wrote you right away i was like dude having you on of course let's go um well it was just, it, it's, it's, it's it's a story in that as well because i i kind of thought how on earth am i going to get a ufo publisher to publish a book on king arthur isn't there's just no connection there at all you know there's no it's and then all of a sudden well all of a sudden it dawned on me philip mantle's a guy who has no fear He's got no fear at all. He will put out whatever he feels is is factually correct. You know, if a UFO lands on your front garden and little green men get out of that UFO and he can prove it, it's going in a book. So I thought, okay. He can't prove it. He'll let you print it because well, it's your story. Yeah. So a book on King Arthur that changes everything that really upsets the apple cart. Ah, it's a breeze for Philip. Absolute oh, yeah. breeze, you know. Why not, you know? And uh, I think he's glad he, he took the, the punt and, and went with it, you know, because he's, he's getting he some too. great results. Dude, I'm so but, uh, glad he is too. And when we started our publishing house, uh, Redigital <clears throat> Publishing, um, yeah. then, uh, that Philip, I had a meeting with him and I said, hey, here's what I'm doing. And he was so sweet. He sent me the contract for you guys. So basically the same yeah. contracts, we use the same thing. And uh, he was just so sweet in all of it. And I was just like, dude, I'm so happy. You're just such a... Uh, mentor for me in this and he was just like yeah here's the info didn't treat it like competition nothing because I go you know and it's not that and he understands that but it was so cool because I'm the same way I'm like yeah let's yeah. let's publish this that's the thing is I'm taking from his cues uh, I was like dude we have to get these stories out for these people yeah. and if you know Schrooster won't print won't publish you then we will you know reach out guys if you got a story or anything just reach out I'm, I'm here for you I mean I had, I had seven major publishers all of them said uh, I won't name all of them, but, you know, they're on the level with people like Bloomsbury and Llewellyn and stuff like that. And they all wrote back to me and they said, this is you know one of the most brilliant books we've ever seen. It's absolutely fantastic. But, you know, it's more than our career's worth to publish it. We can't do it. See, you know, I, God bless Philip Mantle and God bless you for writing this damn thing. But also, yeah. And same thing. And I take so much inspiration from that. He gave me so much yeah. balls and chutzpah to be what I want to be, which is just, dude, share it. Just get it. Yeah, 20, 21st century. That's that's got to be the mantra. Get it out there. Get it out you there. know, we're not hanging around like they've done for the last couple of hundred years. We're going to say it, you know, get it out there. Yeah, well, Absolutely. Print, 
if you don't want to read it, don't read it, but it's out there yeah. and someone yeah. will absolutely love it and resonate with it. And we've actually found, and I know Phillips shares this as well, is that there is such a craving for that because other publishers turn down the brilliant work that they first of all acknowledge and then secondly yeah. won't print because it yeah. does upset the beautiful Apple cart. And here's the thing with that. You know, looking at uh, like the show I do and things like this, I didn't call it like this is what aliens are. Yes, I'm highly, highly motivated to talk about that. But the whole point was to leave it very broad and open and expansive, right? So same yeah. thing with like the um, the foundation on which we're building Redigital Publishing on. It's, dude, come as you are. Like I've got no – the 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 only requirement is actually authenticity. I don't need to verify any of your shit. This is your work. You keep all your copyrights. Like we are very empowering. Mm. I just want to – help you get your story out. That's it. And we will absolutely print that. But again, that foundation is there for us to give everyone a voice, not to give only a certain people that fit into a certain look and category of voice. And eventually, sometimes you'll get marketing people that come in and all of that, and it can go askew. This will never go askew. This has a foundational organizational mission statement to it that won't allow for the things that you've experienced in the other publishers to happen to any of our authors. So what Philip has done for you, man, is release this thing mm. and you watch. This thing is going to go nuts. It blows uh, up. You're going to rewrite yeah, the will. whole thing. And then now <laughs> all those other people will be calling you back going, um. Yeah. Can, can we do a different edition of it? Can we do right. one in leather, you know, with golden trim and all that? I'll be like, no. Sure, but you're not going to like Philip can do that, you know. But, <laughs> yes, that's no, right. He's got it. He's got it. <laughs> I mean, one of the things they, uh, they picked up on as well fairly early on is that the style of the book is very, um, how can I put it? How can I describe it? It's kind of blocky, but in an easy way. You know, there's a certain, I've got a certain writing style. Quite a lot of people have said I write in a certain style. You do. You know, at the end of the day, what most people don't realize, this is exclusive to you guys, is I'm actually dyspraxic. So I'm writing uh, as a dyspraxic. It's, it's like dyslexia. Yeah. Uh, and it makes you, it makes you go back and reread things over and over and over again. It's what dyspraxics do. But also it makes you a bit of a perfectionist. You've got a certain way of uh, tackling things. But the mainstream publishers don't like that. They just like this rambling narrative of, you know, non-factual whatever. You know, you can just, you can drone on forever. So you might get, you know, a couple of facts every you know 10 or 20 pages in some books and the rest of it's just rambling nonsense but what a dyspraxic does it make it makes you focus you know you've got to get that information in so i think that's working because you'd be amazed how many other people out there actually warm to that you know it's it's not a bad writing style yeah. but it's different it's not what you'd normally find you know in, in the style that books are written uh, like yourself reading some of these books you're thinking yeah, I like this, and it's fast. It's a helter-skelter ride, and it's bam, 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 bam. But it's dead easy to read. So I've sort of reinvented a writing style of my own that's just me. But it gels. You know, it gels. Not with publishers, but it does with readers. So, you know. And that's uh, what I don't know. Like you say, like I would I I'd encourage other people to, you know, have a go. Right, yeah. rise, rise above anything that people say to you. Have a go. You know, there's, there's a book there, no matter what, dyslexic, dyspraxic, whatever. Have a go, you know. Wait, really. and, and I love that because it's such a creative way in which you write. And yeah, uh, your crystal skulls and human heads. What I like, too, about having friends that are authors is, is that I read the book and the inner monologue is in your voice. So I have you as Aww. an audio book and my voice is up reading this <laughs> thing. It's so nice, Mark, honestly. Oh, that's and, brilliant. Yeah, well, and, and it is interesting, though, because, you know, being um, 
Being someone that's just been so addicted to books for, I mean, since I was in fourth grade, it, it goes a long mm. way back. My fourth grade teacher gave me a Calvin and Hobbes book, and I'll never forget it. And I sat down with Calvin and Hobbes. I'm in fourth grade. I sat down with a Calvin and Hobbes book and a dictionary, and I had to know what they were saying. And I was just so interested in the way that it, that story mm. was being told. And, of course, Bill Watterson, you know, he puts, like, these crazy dinosaurs and F-14s and shit and then, and then a bunch of comic strip stuff. So it was just fascinating to me, and I just fell in love with reading. And so to find authors that are so creative, I put you, um, also Peter Shampoo is one of these authors, where he uh, takes uh, the reader into consideration when writing the book. For instance, yeah. his one of his books, he has all writing on the right, writing on the left page and pictures on the right pages of the entire book and because when you're reading that it mimics the patterns the polar pattern of your brain yeah i've just done that the ufo book that's coming out later in the year i've just done that see it's things like that though like that extra attention and i don't mind the ones that go on and on and on Mm. and that's fine and there's a there's there's benefit in that too and you know this yeah yeah absolutely unique authors that like you that really take pride in being so damn unique but then also aren't in alignment with publishers that constrict them you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. You, you number one are free and beautiful and number two you know do no harm but take no shit and that's my yeah motto too. Oh, absolutely i, I mean it's, it's it's little it's little things that are not little things i like when when they put you know quotes in the original language and then they don't bother to translate them yeah you know, it looks it looks really clever but it's no help to the reader no <laughs> and loads of know. numbers you know with footnotes Yep. That annoys the hell out of me because you can't read the book for looking up stuff, you know. Or worse than that, they put them all at the end of the chapter. Yeah, the reference endnotes I'd prefer over the in-between uh, information. And I have uh, – I, I read a book that I, I – you're fine. I read a book absolutely um, 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 very interesting recently. Mm. But, yeah, it was, a, it was a challenge to read just simply because it was a lot of um, – references to foreign names and then they were taking yeah. uh, egyptian names and then putting the parentheses in and so you get like a sentence every paragraph that you can pick up a, a sentence out of but it's it's challenging to read it's exhausting you know what i mean it's like it's academic it's what the yeah. academics tend to do and it, it just it annoys me to bits it really does because you know you can't get into the book yes. for all the baggage that they've strapped on it you know why don't <laughs> i mean if it's that important you know put it in the book and if it's not that important go and write another book you know, but don't don't bother don't bother me with it. You know, just I want to read the book. I want to get on with it. You know, how many <clears> people <throat> though sit here and talk about the way that people write? You know, but that's an interesting yeah. from a perspective. It's it's very interesting, but we yeah. appreciate it. So thank mm. you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the stuff that you're talking about on ancient aliens. So again, guys, uh, thank you first of all for all the Merlin. Fascinating. Um, the polygon. Will you say it, please? Because I like the way you say it better. Polychronicon. Of, uh, it's, it's poly, Joseph. poly, and then crony, and then con. Poly, I know, polychronicon. I just like, I just like yeah. the way you say it. So the <laughs> polychronicon of, of Merlin, Merlin Joseph, Joseph and yeah. Arthur will be located down below. So you guys make sure to check that out. Uh, again, fascinating. So tell us some of the stuff about uh, ancient aliens. First, do you, do you mind, um, what are your thoughts on giving us some behind the scenes? What were they like to work with? Yeah, I mean, the production staff. Wow. Um, fab. All I can say is they're fabulous. They're great guys to work for. Um, basically, Prometheus, who are the production company. Um, it's an interesting story. I'll tell you a bit of the story. Um, I was on a UFO conference in um, July, I think it was, in Blackpool last year. Uh, and uh, the key, two of the keynote speakers were Eric Von Daniken and Giorgio. Um, and they're both there. Um, and... Uh, when we were backstage, I, I was sat next to Eric. Now, I think everybody was kind of peering over the coffee cups going, you know, this is going to go badly. You know, <laughs> we, there, there's an archaeologist sat next to Eric, you know. 
Uh, so I'm sat there and Eric sat there. So I, I just leaned over to Eric while he was eating his butty. And I just said, you know, I said, I'm a professional archaeologist. I grew up in the 70s. I said, my dad had your book, Cherry to the Gods, on his shelf. I said, I read it. I didn't necessarily agree with all of it. I said, but you know what? I said, as a trainee archaeologist, it taught me to look at things differently. Yes. I said, at the end of the day, you know, it taught me not to assume that everything was exactly as I was looking at. And he put his butty down and he looked at me and he went, you know, he said, there are 267 question marks in that book. <laughs> and then he just sat by and he went back to eating his butty. And I thought, that's it. All he wanted to do was make people think. Yes. You know, he just wanted people to go, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. Don't just sit there and believe everything you're told. Anyway, after that, I hit it off with him. I hit it off with Giorgio. We had a really good laugh. Uh, Giorgio, you know, like a lot of folks do, he just said, uh, you're just the kind of guy we could use on ancient aliens. I'll put a word in when I get home sort of thing. Anyway, I didn't think anything of it. You know, months go by as they do. And uh, then I got the email of Prometheus, bless them. And they're like, uh, we're filming in London. I think it was in October. <coughs> and they said, um, we'll stick you in a hotel and we'll do a couple of days and we'll we'll get a couple of these out of the way. So they sent me loads of info, background info. They wanted obelisks. They wanted um, crop circles and a few others. <coughs> and I said, yeah, I can help you with this. Um, I think we ended up in... Um, National Geographic Society. Damn. Mm. I've heard a lot about Prometheus, though, as a production company, and I hear that they're very, very cool. Yeah, they took us there uh, into the library of the National Geographic. That's so cool. Bear with me. And, oh, um, you're fine. You're fi I'm going to pull all these coughs out in the audio. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, yeah, we know, you're, we know you're not feeling well, and you're doing this. Thank you so much for this, dude. Yeah, I'll yank all these out. No problem. Because I now know you're editing them out. I'll have a good go yeah, at one. Yeah, no, have a go. Yeah. <clears throat> So, um, right, it's gone. So anyway, yeah, let's pick the story up. Uh, so you sat there talking to a producer in America um, on a connection and the camera guys are there with the cameras and you're over here in the UK. Uh, so this particular producer in America, he sends me this clip and it's um, UFOs producing crop circles over a field in, in Wiltshire. And I'm sat there and I'm looking at it and he's like, uh, can you copy, you know, can you comment on this, please? And I'm like, uh, actually, no, I can't. And he's like, why? Why can't you comment on this? I'm like, because they're Chinese lanterns. I said, everybody knows what Chinese lanterns look like. You know, these little tiny gold things and they sat there floating and flickering. And <clears throat> I'm like, you don't want to use that. I said, you'll just get laughed off. I said, go on the, online. I said, in the early 1990s, there's, there's actual footage of a ball that whizzes, a ball of light whizzes around this field. And you see all the crops go down and then it whizzes off. I said, that's what you want. Guess what's in the crop circle program? They managed to find this footage. Because you told them about it. That is awesome. You're like, hey, and I've seen that footage. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's fascinating. The thing goes over and swooms and the camera follows it. And then the, it just makes these patterns and the grass just lays down in those patterns. Yeah, that's it. And, and they managed to find that. So I think from that point on, Prometheus was just like, yeah, this this is one of those, you know, <clears throat> this guy does actually know what he's talking about. Um, so I went down again, I think it was in November, and did another film with them um, <clears throat> in a, a derelict house, derelict manor house. Uh, that was amazing. 
wow, do you know, it's one of these things where you, you're going around going, oh, I wish I could get the house clearance on this. You know, it's just it's just awesome. Yeah. Um, but they filmed in this this derelict property. Uh, and it was just loads of fun. Really nice guys, really nice crew. Um, really good experience. I mean, I am aware of the fact that they they... I think they did about two hours in total or maybe longer, maybe nearly three hours of footage of me. And I'm likely to only appear in the programs, you know, for a matter of a minute or two minutes and then that'll yeah. be it. They're going <clears> to <throat> spread you out over all, all of the episodes in that season though. Yeah. Yeah. They God, will do. Awesome. Um, it's going to be good. It's loads of fun. I can see them coming back and, and sort of doing something with me again. Of course. Um, also though, of course you got, I mean, I'm not pushing for work here, but you've also got the curse of Oak Island, I yeah. think they could use they could use an archaeologist on that. They really could. Dude, um, what, well, then now I need to know what have you thought of what have you looked into on in the uh, Oak Island case? It's just I've watched lots of episodes and I've watched their methodology and how they're doing things. Yeah, and I'm watching some of the things they're pulling out, and also in one of the very later seasons, the the authorities got involved and said we're not going to let you dig in that area. And I'm kind of I'm watching it as an archaeologist and I'm thinking, yeah, I know exactly why they're not going to let them in there because they can't just wade in with a bulldozer, basically, you know. Um, so I'd like to get a bit more involved in the methodology of that. Uh, and if nothing else, I think I could say, you don't want to do that, but you do want to do this. You know, don't do it that way. Do it this way. Uh, you know, this thing that you've got hold of isn't what you think it is. It's this, you know, and I, I could sort of I could get a hold of that and kind of steer it in the right direction. You know, it's something I could get my teeth into. Um, yeah, I, and the, I I see you, Jose Miguel Perez Gomez, going up there. He's this dude from uh, Venezuela. I had on. I've got to connect you guys. Uh, he's oh. incredible. And th this is one thing as an archaeologist, uh, you two ring this bell for me. He's sitting there talking about you know petroglyphs as um, manifestations of the hunt. So there's ancient peoples are sitting there manifesting the hunt in these ritual experiences, basically seeing it happen and then living it out, right? Manifesting it and then, then creating it. He's got just this spiritual reverence for all of this, just like you do, and ask the right questions tons of question marks in his reports just just uh, the same as yours <clears throat> sounds like we're on the same page though, oh, yeah. For sure. oh yeah no i'm gonna hook y'all yeah. up because you too going to um lift the curse of the uh oak island oh, we'll, that is, well even if we just get rid of the curse you know it just yeah. becomes you know the treasure of oak island it would be <clears> y'all <throat> going up there to do it so what do you think it is so uh just if you don't mind for the audience it's not too familiar uh with the oak island um uh, thing it's just what a shaft that was digging down and they kept finding yeah there was a um, there was a treasure pit of some form um and over a long period of time we're talking 250 years they've been bashing away at this treasure pit so you can imagine the holes got bigger and bigger and bigger and it's just descended into a bigger mess than than you can imagine and now where the pit used to be is this massive area of ground but since these guys have really got stuck in and they took over the island and, and they're doing it on a bigger scale, they've discovered that the entire island has got stuff on it all over the place. Damn. And I, I'm convinced they've got evidence going back as far as medieval. Um, so they've got stuff going back to the 1200s on there. Um, and there seems to be a continuous kind of activity, if you like, uh, the same place on the island over, well, certainly the last, within the last thousand years, you know, people have been dropping in there all the time, uh, which of course flies in the face of traditional American history and archaeology, it's you know, um, yeah, it is. I, I've never bought into that. No. Uh, there was a book by a guy called Barry Fell, and it was called America BC. Mm -hmm. And it was released in something like 1977, something like that. And it was instantly banned. So if anybody <laughs> wants to know. know, 
yeah, go find it. America BC by Barry Fell. And it's all in there. You've got, you know, Egyptian, Venetian, Irish, uh, medieval, Viking, Roman. You know, every man and his dog has been into America at some point, um, you know. What do you think about the idea that uh, actually ancient Egypt, Jerusalem, everything was actually in the Americas? Have you heard about this and that actually the Nile is the Mississippi and that Memphis, Tennessee is actually the Memphis that's referred to in ancient texts and that actually this America where I'm at is the actual ancient land and then everything was moved um, for a deliberate sort of apprehension? Okay, that's all right. Yeah, it goes, it goes in two directions for me. Uh, first of all, you need to know that I, I, I did study geology. I've got qualifications in geology. So natural landscape and natural phenomena and the way the earth mirrors things, you know, from one place to another has nothing really to do with us. It just happens. So let's get that out of the way, you know, to begin with. We're not talking about any kind of artificial landscapes here. Okay. Uh, the geology is unique wherever you go. So that's that. Uh, and then the second avenue there that you go down is, are these civilizations very similar wherever you go? Mm. And the answer is, surprisingly, yes. So it wouldn't surprise me that there were two locations or three locations or more than that on the planet that all have similar man-made structures, man-made geography, mapping, names, culture, etc. You know, that would not surprise me one bit. How it got there and why is, I think, an entirely different story. Yeah. I'm not sure I would be quite so definitive and quite so definite on you know yeah you know it was all there and then it moved to all over there and uh, that the the archaeology the geology the history it doesn't back that up um it's more likely actually the the original traditional atlantean legends are probably closer to the truth you know it was all together right and people were all doing the same thing in the same place and then all of a sudden boom you know something happened and they all got scattered you know, that seems to be more what the reality is is supporting, you know. But then, you know, if you go if you go west and call a place Egypt because it's a bit similar to where you got scattered from, and then you go east and call another place Egypt because you didn't realise that the guys that went west have done the same thing. Yeah, it's you like you see uh, what's happening. It's like the story of Columbus calling uh, the Native Americans here Indians because he thought he landed in India, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly that. You know, and it's just like, um, and also whenever you go to a new territory, you bring a lot of your home with you for comforts. It's sort of like how uh, immigrants from any uh, culture will set up mini communities like Chinatown or something like that. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think you're seeing happening. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, oh boy, I mean, ancient aliens and all that, again, it's, they are a whiz at picking up on similarities. Yeah. You know, this this pyramid here looks like that pyramid there, this doorway, that doorway, this window, that window, this language, that language, you know, this figure, that figure. You know, they they but that's not new. I mean, I've got books going books going all the way back to the nineteen sixties that do that. Uh, you know, but it, it used to be very underground. It's a very underground thing to do. Uh, but in, in actual fact, no, they're they're bringing all that forward. Um uh, I mean, just just to wrap up the ancient aliens thing, it was quite interesting because you've got Giorgio, who's like 
I'm not saying it's aliens, but, <laughs> but it might alien. be, you know what I mean? <laughs> and my zip line is, you know, I'm not saying aliens, but I'm an archaeologist and I don't think it is, you know what I mean? I'm kind of, it's like the balance, you know what yeah. I mean? Balance do, you have a tag? do you have a tag where you lean in and do something like that, where we're going to see you on a t-shirt soon? No, no, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, maybe I'm not quite there people. yet. Yeah, maybe. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm playing the same game. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, rather yeah. than have like, you know, um, writer, presenter, archaeologist, I've just I've just got archaeologist. I wanted that as my zip line because I thought that is what I am. You know, let's get this right. I'm, I'm here as an archaeologist. Uh, and then I'm wearing I'm wearing a distinctive red jacket because you're not allowed to wear blue because Eric does. And uh, they said, oh, you know, you're supposed to wear a shirt and a tie. And I'm like. Really? Yeah, I got you. You know, you, you really? So I turn up in a black T-shirt, which is what I normally wear. Um, uh, so I've got a little Templar pin brad badge on here. Um, when I'm doing stuff kind of out and about now, I, I wear, Giorgio gave me one of those little aeroplanes. Oh, you yeah. Know, the, uh, the, the ones they found in Colombia. Yeah, the Vinca the Gold yeah. ships. He wears one of them. So I do now as well. I'm going to wear that tomorrow for a book signing. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm playing to it, you know. Dude, have fun. Yeah. You're you're one of these iconic characters anyway. We're going to see you all over memes. I'm going to start them, actually. When I've, I'm going to grab <laughs> screenshots from you uh, on Ancient Aliens, and we're going to start fucking – I'm going to do some battles. Yeah. In fact, we're going to have a lot of fun with this, and I'm going to encourage the audience to do this as well. I'll let you all know when Mark's yeah. episode comes out, and we'll um, grab a couple screenshots with – Sukinos right there with you, and we'll have y'all do some sort of side by side. Um, or, or just put, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's aliens, but I'm an archaeologist, you know, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah, know? it's not aliens because I'm an archaeologist. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, yeah. well, we're not saying it's aliens. I'm an archaeologist. I think it's us. Yeah, it's you know, us. May, yeah. Or maybe, just but maybe it's us, you know, you dude, have a play with that sort of thing. I'm you not know? saying it's aliens. Maybe it's us. That's your line. Yeah. Dude. Okay, give me a second to write that down. Listening audience, I apologize to you, but we are very excited with this. Uh, there's an audio only component that's just like looking at their. Uh, uh, yeah, you, you, you hit right the nail on the head the there. Aren't you? Okay, let uh, me just say, let me just say here, by the way, if Giorgio ever gets to see this, if he's ever watching this, this is tongue in cheek. I'm, oh, I'm only uh, having some love. fun, you know. It's all love. It's well, all love. That's, that's what's so yeah. fun about this stuff. Like, um, I gave Dave a little bit of love in a in a, a little bit of shit. I mean, in a loving way when he shaved his beard. Right? We just love each yeah. other. Like, and yeah. if you do the same thing, I'll be like, oh, aren't you cold? Old, you know, and we'll have some fun. It, it's just, a, it's all love anyway. Um, uh, dear. Maybe it's us. Okay. I want to ask you about, and so th th sticking with the, I guess, my side of the pond here, the other yeah. things about, because uh, I want to ask an archaeologist this. So what about the mummies and the things that have been found in the Grand Canyon? Do you think that that was just a cross-cultural thing because that culture was so widespread and then therefore everything dissolved after the big whatever uh, Tower of Babel moment that spread us Ooh. all out or whatever? I have read quite a bit on and off about what was found in the Grand Canyon, whether it's officially there, unofficially there, mm -hmm. whether the accounts are true or false or whatever. Uh, the stuff you get on the internet over here is nonsense. It's all stuff that people have stitched together from elsewhere. Um, but there is something in it, you know, don't get me wrong. The core of it is that there was a culture doing something in the Grand Canyon, uh, and it certainly looks to be an advanced culture doing something as far as the mummies and what have you concerned. Mummies appear the world over. They're absolutely everywhere. So it's not something unique to the Grand Canyon. Um, and the fact that they're in America, actually, to me as an archaeologist, that doesn't come as a surprise. Um, the methods of mummification tend to vary 
But, you know, it's ridiculous. We even have it over here. Everything goes rotten over here because it's a damp environment. So they decided they were going to make mummies by dumping them in peat bogs and tanning them. So, you know, this this obsession with preserve, preserving the body, it's over here as well. It's everywhere. So it wouldn't surprise me in a dry environment like the Grand Canyon that they weren't doing something remarkably similar to what they were doing in Egypt. You know, it's the same thing. Um, but the, of course, the billion-dollar question is, where did they get the idea from? You know, yes. where does it begin? Um I don't like the way that America hides things. I've got to no be honest. Shit. That's thank you. You know, We're that's just that. hey, that's always been a problem. You know, you get a thirty thousand year old skull out of a river in an Indian reservation, and it vanishes into the basement of the CIA. You know, I get all the politics and I get all that, but that's not archaeology. You know, yeah. it's uh, that's politics. You know, what's that got to do with me? You know, it's it's something else. Um, but I'm not I'm not political, as you'll have gathered from. You know what we were talking about, King Arthur. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's shoot, it's a duck. You know, if that's how it looks and it quacks like a duck, you know, that's it. Uh, you know, that, I'm all though. for, I'm all for getting you, it out there. You, you do. Uh, so, um, the equivalent of this that I can empathize with is uh, when I had David Weiss on the show, uh, my first year, and it was a flat, flat Earth episode. So I have a guy on talking about flat earth and stuff and man, that was the equivalent. The comment comment section on YouTube is the equivalent of me just draw like take opening a room, throwing like a bunch of grenades in it, and just <laughs> shutting the room. And that's what you do. You just walk in, you're like, hey, society, here's this book. And but you you don't even stop. It's like you're flying over in your dope ass Del Shao dirigible <laughs> and you're just dropping the shit that's just going yeah. on. People ah losing yeah, their walk damn minds. In, drop the mic, walk out, go walk find out, another dude. room, do Bounce. the same again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's what I'm all about. One more question for you uh, about the Grand Canyon, yeah. actually, and this one pertains to a video that I saw this guy post that brought up an interesting question, and um, I just wanted to ask you this. So mm -hmm. I know also, you know, you are mainly archaeology, but you have a very strong um, affinity for geology as well. So yes. the Grand Canyon, okay? We're told that that was formed by millions of years by one river, the Colorado River. Now, I understand that rocks are different in different places okay but that is the only river out of the thousands <laughs> and thousands of rivers on this planet that has made that impression in the ground there are rivers that have been flowing just as long as it probably maybe longer but haven't made that indention and flow faster and deeper and all those things so what's going on with the grand canyon do you think that we're not being told what that is well, let me give you a little story. This will illustrate a little story about how bonkers geology can get, which is why I'm an archaeologist, not a geologist. Right. Um, they decided that off Iceland, which is an island just kind of off the north of Britain here, so it's quite local to us, they decided that this, there was this volcano that was coming up to the surface uh, just off the coast of Iceland, and it was starting to form an island. So all the geologists are like, whoa, this is amazing. Never seen anything like this. Let's get the cameras on there and all the testing equipment, this, that, and the other. And I'm going back quite a ways, probably 30 years or more ago now. Anyway, they all barrel onto the island, you know, pile all the gear on and dodge the volcanic lava and the bombs and this and get everything set up. And then they back off. They saw about, and this is no lie, about a billion, a billion years of geology form in front of them in a week. So all of a sudden, all the textbooks, all the theories going back into the Victorian times, everything they thought they knew, all had to change 
it all had to get thrown in the bin and they had to go back and start again because the planet, Mother Nature, however you want to view it, you know, Gaia, a living entity, whatever, the planet is quite capable of doing its own thing and it does it on a very regular basis. So back to the Grand Canyon, just because that doesn't look like something anywhere else doesn't mean that we as human beings can just invent our own idea of how it comes about and impose that on it. You know, that's that's not right. That's illogical. We have not got another type site. There isn't anything anywhere else to compare it to. But we could do studies on the rocks. You can have a look at the layering and things like that. And if people really put in the time and effort and really study it, I'm convinced they'll get some surprises. I don't think it's, you know, 100 million years old. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think most of what we're looking at is what I would say is post-Fangio, which is the breakup of the continents. And then you've got a couple of other impacts of asteroids and meteorites and what have you. And then you've got a flood, whatever caused that. Boy, is that going to shake the tree? You know, that's going to mess things up big style. Uh, and what we're living in is is post that, post Ice Age. You know, there's a hell of a lot gone on. I'm not messing with time frames. I don't care how long all this took. You know, could have took a week, a month, a year, a million years. Who knows? But it's all happened because we've got physical evidence of it happening. And that is going to change what's going on at the Grand Canyon. Uh, I mean, an absolute total mind-blowing thing is that you go to the tallest mountain on planet Earth, the Matterhorn, go go to the Matterhorn in the Alps and get yourself on top of the Matterhorn. There are fossilised shells yeah. from the bottom of the ocean on top of the Matterhorn because one bit of the continent's dropped and the other bit's, the other bit's gone up, you know. The planet does what the planet does, you know. Um so if somebody came to me and said, you know, I'm absolutely emphatically, I'm, you know, I've got 20 billion qualifications in geology. I'm a scientist. I'm this that, and the other, you know, I've radiocarbon dated this that, and the other. And I've looked at, you know, entropy and the decay of atoms. And I'm sure that the rocks are blah, blah, blah. And I, I'd, I'd sat there and I'd just go, do you know what? Prove it. Yeah. Prove it. Yeah, because you know? it, it, it almost sounds like they're either hiding something super dope that did happen, and they're mm -hmm. just saying it was a river. So in the same sense that you can't, that that it just does that, and we just do our best to anthropomorphize what we're what may have happened there. The same may have happened for the traditional story, because there's like, and, yeah. and I love I love what you said, but uh, what they saw forming is in its own right its own pace of geology which is in its in its own right fascinating that formation but as far as erosion yeah. goes water erodes at the same rate right so you would yeah. think that even rivers in the same area because there are a bunch of rivers around there <clears throat> in the same area didn't carve the same depth even flowing at the same rate so i get that creation can occur at different rates and mind-blowing yeah. scales but as yeah. far as just erosion wind water they pretty much scour the earth evenly, right? Yeah, Some well, obvious differences with uh, degree and intensity and extremes and all of those things. But in that one particular area, also the river flows, and I'm sure you know this, the river flows yeah. up elevation. Yeah. Okay, so, and it doesn't flow to sea. So that's what's so weird too, is it's, it's lateral position east to west rather than north to south. So it almost sounds like either a weapon occurred, like a violent maybe... Like what they maybe think that that huge scour across Mars is, right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That gigantic yeah, yeah. crevice to where there was some sort of energy <clears throat> weapon maybe that skipped off the damn thing or like you said, an impact, and then it just sort well, of filled with water, you know? It, it's a classic case of um, 
making assumptions based on what we're not seeing. Yes. It's the absence of something that's, that's causing the problem. Because, uh, I mean, if, if you go, let's go platonic and say, you know, Plato, um, Atlantis, you know, down goes Atlantis, uh, let's say 10,500 BC. That's 12,500 years ago. So all of a sudden, you've got, you know, half a million years or 75 percent of a million years or even a million years worth of erosion taking place all in one go because we're missing that bit and it's taking place twelve and a half thousand years ago and it's gone so it's been it's cut the channel and it's gone so what we're doing is we're looking at what we're left with so the, you know the grand canyon might only be thirteen thousand years old that might yeah. be it and it could you know? have been a huge scour and yeah. then filled with water. And the, so yeah. it didn't erode from the flat surface like they show you those models of, and it just slowly eats down. It's like, dude, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's just kind of an odd thing. Plus, I mean, right over there next to it in Winslow, Arizona, there's Meteor Crater. So you've already yeah. got a massive Meteor Crater impact yeah. a few miles away, right? So yeah, it could I mean, have been the trail of something, right? Yeah, even, even a prop, what I would call a proper geologist, even somebody that really knows his onions would look at the whole of that part of that continent Right. as a complete picture yeah. and would be looking for impact craters, you know, plate tectonics movement, earth movement, you know, you can't just, you, you can't be an ecological geologist and just go, Hey, guess what? It's raining. Therefore it's, you know, it's washed it out with rain. You can't do that. Nothing happens in isolation. You know, you've really got to look at the bigger picture, but uh, you just, just got, you've got to put the hours in. Exactly. But it's just like your King Arthur discoveries. I mean, this yeah. this information's out there. Anyone could have found this at any time. But people have been writing the story of King Arthur for a long time now. And you're yeah. the one that figured out that it was different. So in my mind, and same thing, this is back to Jose as well. This dude discovered uh, a, a Spanish fleet that was sunk since the missing since the 1700s. And he just did a couple calculations. It was like, yeah, it's right over here. And he found a bunch of cannons. Like he discovered this whole thing. Then he discovered like the pathway to El Dorado, like this entrance yeah. to the actual El Dorado. Then he found uh, these petroglyph things. But what I'm saying is, is that these remarkable things like these lost artifacts you're talking about, perhaps this Grand Canyon mystery, yeah. the King Arthur thing, they've been misunderstood because it was waiting for you you mark to come out and understand it it wasn't waiting for anybody else it was waiting for you and so this is what i find fascinating because I, mm. I feel this way about jose everything you sent me your cost but i can edit those on the fly okay <laughs> Uh, and so it's just fascinating again the reverence and the eyes that it takes to see this kind of stuff and so even on the thing like the grand canyon like i'm I think it's fascinating what they found in it. And again, the legends are so cool. And of course, now there's a big metal grate over that thing and you can't go see it and you're not allowed to get in there. And so that even adds to the damn mystery. And then uh, the thought that it was a bunch of Buddha statues in there and hieroglyphics and actually the mummification reported that was found in the Grand Canyon was identical to the Egyptians. The process, uh, like they could identify the exact process, just like you yeah. said. So it, it's just fascinating, and I love that. And so hopefully, um, maybe you, maybe somebody, maybe I'm going to team you and Jose up anyway. Yeah, I'm cool. pretty sure I love that's it. Love a it. super, super archaeological team, archaeological team there. Okay, uh, one more thing. I want to um, close this out here uh, first by just sending you all the blessings in the world for, for oh, hanging out you. with us. It's and been fun. <laughs> absolutely. And secondly, what are you working on next? So you, you alluded to a book that you have coming out next. Uh, what, what are you working on? Well, um, it, you know, it's one of those things where having put out the King Arthur book, uh, you look at Philip and you go, well, do you know, his thing is UFOs. Uh, and at the end of the day, I'm probably reasonably well known for doing uh, a UFO crash that happened in 1983 
I produced um, a DVD on it called Europe's Roswell um, for Reality Entertainments, which is an American company. Uh, I did that in 2008. And the idea was to go and have a look at, you know, this this impact uh, and see if we can find any more debris and, and look at it from an archaeological perspective. Anyway, as it turns out, the MOD had cleared this site. There wasn't anything else there. But the DVD that was produced in 2008, it ended up being shown all over the place. It was on Amazon Prime. I think you can even get Europe's Roswell now on um, on the internet. I think it might be out there now. Uh, but there's no book version of it. And what Philip did last year, he said to me, he said, well, he said, if it crashed in 1983, he said, well, 2023 is 40 years. It's 40 years since Impact. So I'm like, hey, there's a book title. That's right. Europe's Roswell, 40 years since Impact or whatever. So, and he said, well, why don't you actually put it in print, get all the material and see what you can find that will update this, you know, from 2008. Um, Now, the actual crash was investigated by a guy called Gary Rowe. Uh, He's quite a famous UFO ufologist over here. Um, So it's all back with the sort of team that Philip's used to and people that are Known. Uh, so I just thought, yeah, that you know, that'd be that'd be such a blast because I've, I've had really heavy stuff through lockdown with the Crystal Skulls. I've had forty odd years plus doing the King Arthur one. So let's just just do it, you know, one single individual thing. But it's also given me the opportunity at the beginning uh, to put my own two UFO encounters in there. So there's a couple of stories of things I've seen and happened to me in the past. Then there's the actual crash. uh, And then there's all the data then that I couldn't put in the DVD. So extra script material, extra stuff from Gary, extra photographs all towards the end. Uh, Gary did another couple of interviews after the DVD. So they're in there uh, and he brings it right back up to date. You know, there's some amazing photographs of the debris in there. Uh, The debris is absolutely knockout. Uh, um, and it's funny because it's, it's an unusual book because it starts at the end. You know, you've, you've already got the debris. You're already looking at these pieces of some crashed, unidentified flying object. You're thinking, what the hell is this? And you've got to go backwards and try and find out where this came from and what it is. So I do I do a nice conclusion about what I think it is and where I think it's come from. Um, it's I've got to be honest, it's not a very long book. It's, it's quite the opposite to the Arthur one. Uh, you know, if, if you order the, the, the giant hardback, which is what this is, you know what I mean? That's an absolute beast. Uh, so it's not like that. It's the same format as the Crystal Skulls one. Um, and we're not, yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking of doing it as a, uh, a sort of a you know as a blast you know as a we're not going to do a hardback we're not going to make a big you know thing of it it's just it's there to be read it, it's it's there to get it, the information out there so we're, we're we're in the proofreading stage now so we're quite a long way down uh, down the process we've got a really nice cover um and uh it's due out in august i believe it's coming out in august we're going to talk to you 12 more times before then but oh. you know that uh we're we're looking forward already for that also so thank you yeah. for that gift that you are retroactively giving us in the future that is awesome yeah. man we'll definitely have you back on to talk about that that is so cool Damn it, Mark Ollie. I love the shit. <laughs> this is so awesome. And thank you again for showing up with the sniffles. I appreciate you, brother. Oh, yeah. No, I don't let something like that put me down. I really no, don't. No. Fuck no. Uh, rock star. All right. Well, all the ways to find you, of course, located down in the show notes. I'm going to be throwing your band down there, your books. Yeah, uh, yeah. All the ways to find oh, you, man. I, I forgot to tell you that as well. Oh, that's exclusive. We've uh, we've got the CD out at last, the actual album. Do you so, really? you know, the, the 12, 13 track disc is out. 
But it's so new that the, the box of discs was only delivered yesterday. So you're the first person on planet Earth to know that it's actually gone into hard copy. Yeah. We, we've got we've got the discs now and the T-shirts and everything that goes with it. So it actually exists. It, it physically exists now. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's another exclusive for you. So anybody out there that wants them, you know, get on the Copper Worm Instagram and all the other stuff. We're on Facebook. We're everywhere. We're on all the social media. Uh, and order yourself a copy because um, it's out. It's there now. Dude, I'm doing it. Uh, all of its link, guys, down there. Go check it out. Mark Holly, thank you so much. You know you're a brother, man. You're back anytime. Thank you. Uh, pleasure. Absolute rock and roll. Loved every minute of it. Just want to take a moment and thank our dear friend, Mark Ollie, for coming by and hanging out with us. All the ways to find him, as well as his incredibly cool new book, The Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur. Located down below. Make sure you guys check that out. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you again, Mark Ollie. Now, uh, as well as our resource links located down in the show notes, I want to take a second to acknowledge the Fi Tribe link that is down there. Now, what that is, is a YouTube channel. Go check out the YouTube channel if you don't mind. I'm sending y'all there because uh, they'd recently flown me out to Atlanta, and now I'm the reality expander, or they called me the manager, but now I'm the reality expander of Fi Tribe, and absolutely extremely grateful for this. It's an honor, and this is huge, massive huge. So check the show notes down there uh, to get a load of that, and take some of their sleep mixes for a ride. I've been getting overwhelming response with people saying how I haven't slept that good in years. I haven't slept all the way through the night in years. And thank you, thank you, thank you, all that. But um, it's fascinating, guys. So make sure you check that out. Just wanted to point that out down there. As well as expandingrealitypodcast.com. And y'all know what that entails. That's the mothership. That's where you can sign up to become an expansive insider and get all the bonus stuff. That's also where you can support the mission and get all the rentals. If you want to just rent the exclusive stuff for the weekend, you can totally do that. We're very flexible with all this stuff. We are here to empower. So check the show notes for all that stuff, guys. One more thing, the merch store. We have brand new merch down there, so make sure y'all check that out. And also, of course, the handbook. Y'all can follow along with the show with the expanding reality handbook. So make sure y'all check that out. All right, guys, to so go out into this incredibly beautiful and mysterious place, whatever the hell this thing is, and y'all pick up a piece of litter. Be nice to everybody that you come across, please, and thank you for that in advance, as well as uh, buy somebody in line a coffee or a meal around you if you really want to step your game up there. Also, uh, go ahead and get out of the left-hand lane if you've got somebody behind you wanting to pass. I really appreciate that. That one's, that one's for me as well. Also, uh, go ahead and go out into this incredibly beautiful and mysterious place, above all and anything else, and y'all just be good to one another. That's it. Thank you so much for watching, listening, engaging, and just being the cool sons of bitches ever. We'll see you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.